Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 10, Getting Tired of Living with the Lombards. So, here we are at episode 10. I wasn't actually sure I'd get this far. They say that the average podcast fizzles out around episode 7, so we've got about three more than the average. Now, the 10th episode also coincides with almost arriving at 100 listeners on the Apple Podcast Analytics. That means listeners who are listening on an iOS uh, 11.0 or later... Um, so I'll be very curious to find out if you're listening, uh, which I imagine some people are listening, on some other platform. Um, it would be great if you could let me know what you're listening on. Thanks very much for that. So, back to our Lombards. In the last episode, we ushered in the reign of Ansprand, who had returned from exile to sort of revenge the brutal murder of most of his family by King Aripert II. We say sort of, because if you remember, Anspran actually lost the battle. But Aripert II left the field too soon, and his army was annoyed and went over to the other side. And the king drowned trying to make off with the royal treasure. So Anspran became king in March of 712 at the age of 55, which back then was a pretty good age to arrive at. He was evidently happy with that objective because he died in June of that same year, leaving his only surviving son, Lutprand, as the new king. Now, Lutprand was another biggie in the history of the Lombard reign in Italy, and he had quite a long reign. We can actually divide up his reign into two distinct periods, a more peaceful one of consolidation and lawmaking from 712 to 726, and a more aggressive phase starting in 726 and continuing until his death in 744. King Liudbrand was a rather pious Catholic, and he championed some of the policies of the Catholic Church and actually made them into law, adding to the body of laws that had been created by Rothery in his edict in 643. The new added laws were aimed at helping the weaker members of society, the elderly, children and women. He introduced fines for bigotry and adultery and forbade girls under 12 years of age from being forced into marriage. He also amended the existing laws, for example, by adding to the Wiedergild, the sum that someone had to pay to the family of someone they had killed or wounded or if they had damaged property of that family, as well as the sum the culprits had their lands confiscated, which hurt much more than the sum of money, because they then couldn't make up the sum of money again from the land revenues. All in all, Liutprand added six new laws in his first year, and another 147 during his reign. The king also did a pretty good job consolidating the central power over the pesky dukes and the gastalts. Wait a minute there, I hear you say. Who are these guys now? Well, 
We know that the dukes had authority over the major cities of the reign, cities that at times were important in Roman times and in other cases had gained importance at the expense of nearby Roman cities. You can think of the Gastals as having authority over the bits in between, the countryside and smaller towns. All of these guys would get together, the Gastals, the Dukes and the King, at the beginning of March of every year in Pavia for the assembly of the people, for a good old chinwag about the state of affairs. The whole structure of royal power, the whole structure of royal power was better organized by this time as well. The king could count on a series of officials, such as the Marfais, the master of horses, the guy who did the accounting, the treasurer, or Stolisats, the Cubicularius, who was responsible for the king's private quarters. He also sorted out his personal life by marrying a Bavarian princess, Guntruda. You'll remember that the Bavarians had given refuge to Lutbrand and his father, Ansprand, when they had run away from King Aripert II. It is also under the reign of Lutbrand that culture saw a certain comeback, a little bit of a renaissance, if you will. Obviously not enough to go down in history as a significant improvement, but at least it was something. Now we've sorted out the internal affairs. Let's look at the foreign affairs and the military issues. We said that the first part of the reign, up to 726, was rather peaceful, and he upheld the peace with the Byzantines. However, a series of factors made the situation too tempting to turn down, especially if the king wanted to maintain face with his warrior nobles. The growing pressure on Constantinople from the Arab expansion had forced the Byzantine government to increase the already heavy taxes on the Exarchate, the Byzantine possessions in Italy. And this led, along with other reasons we'll see in a bit, to open revolt in the territories in which the Exarch himself was killed. In Venice, for example, they elected their first independent doge, the word that ended up describing that of duke. In this mess, Lutprand crossed the Po River into the Exarchate, taking the city of Bologna, among others. This worried the Pope down in Rome quite a bit, since the next step after the Exarchate was heading down to Rome. The Pope in question was Gregory II, who had been elected in 715, and he had actually been warming up to the Lombards with their Catholic king, and his pro-church policies, but the bottom line was the survival of the territorial integrity of the Duchy of Rome. This gave rise to an interesting new set of alliances, according to the belief that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Pope made an alliance with the Dukes of Benevento and Spoleto, the southern duchies of the Lombards, who were always looking for a way to gain more autonomy from the king while Lutprand, after the initial attack on the Byzantine exarchate, made an alliance with the new exarch, Eutychius. Indeed, by this time, the Pope was at odds with Byzantium over the heavy taxation on one hand and over the iconoclast movement on the other, quite a change from the times in which Rome was seen as a Byzantine possession. 
So, what is this iconoclast business then? Well, the word itself means destruction of images or breaking images. In the year 726, the Byzantine emperor, who at the time was Leo III, issued an edict banning icons, images, or sculptures showing holy figures such as the Holy Family or the saints. It seems that the edict may have been inspired by a genuine desire to improve the morality, due to the fact that these images drummed up quite a good business. To this day in Italy, the more elderly and more religious people may adorn their houses and even cars or workplaces with cardboard cutouts of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, or certain saints or popes. You couldn't turn anyway in my nonna's, my grandmother's house, without meeting the stern gaze of the 20th century saint and healer, Padre Pio. Anyway, in the end, Lutbrand and the Byzantines got the upper hand, and the king was able to impose, at least for a while, his own men on the thrones of the duchies. With regard to the Pope, on the other hand, Lutbrand came to terms, and it is here that we have to digress for a sec and talk about the donation of Sutri. During the military action, the Lombards had taken a series of fortified positions from the Roman duchy, of which the most important was Sutri. Now, when Lutpran reached an agreement with the Pope, he gave Sutri back, in a certain sense. Indeed, the very important issue is that he didn't give Sutri back to the Byzantines, to whom it had initially belonged, but he gave it back directly to the Pope. Some historians have seen in the donation of Sutri the real start of the Papal States, which would last for over a thousand years, while others argue that you can only really speak of the start of the Papal States with the donation of Pippin in 754, while still others point to the fact that the Popes had been the de facto rulers of Rome and the surrounding area ever since the time of Gregory the Great, between the end of the 6th and the start of the 7th century. So make your choice and place your bets. A lot of to-ing and fro-ing followed this event, with the Pope looking more and more in a different direction for help. Indeed, he had completely given up hope of receiving help from Constantinople, with whom he was still rowing about the iconoclast movement, and the alliance with Benevento and Spoleto had been a bust. So, the Pope started to look west, to the growing power of the Franks. Pope Gregory II had written to the new big cheese over in France, Charles Martel, founder of the Carolingian dynasty and saviour of Western Christendom, with his victory over the Umayyad Caliphate of Abdul Rahman al-Ghafiqi in the Battle of Tours in 732, also known as the Battle of Poitiers. Luckily, Lutbrand had worked hard to build and consolidate a strong personal and political alliance with Charles Martel, also when the popes changed Gregory, from the second, who died in 731, to his successor, the third, and asked the Franks, for help against the Longbards. The request fell on death's ears. After all, he could not intervene against a man who had helped him by defeating a Saracen incursion 
while Charles was busy fighting up north in Saxony, and who had adopted Charles's son Pippin, giving him the royal legitimacy which would be fundamental in the rise to power of the Carolingians. However, Liutprand was a wise king, and when he led yet another force down to Rome in the year 739, the threat of a possible turn of alliances between the Pope and Charles Martel was enough to make him desist. Liutprand died in the year 744 and was buried in the capital Pavia, where to this day you can go and visit his tomb. He left a strong, stable reign that had almost reached its maximum expansion. He was a good lawmaker and showed great personal bravery. For example, when he had gotten wind of a conspiracy by two nobles, he had invited them out into the woods, the two of them and himself alone, and challenged them. The conspirators had fallen at his feet and begged for forgiveness, which they had been granted. Liutprand saw power as a mission from God, and all in all, he performed it well. When he died, his nephew, Ildeprand, took the throne. The young man had performed well in the wars against the Byzantines. It had been he, for example, that had actually taken Ravenna before it was taken back again with the help of the Venetian fleet. Nevertheless, his reign only lasted eight months, then fell to the centrifugal forces, who gathered this time behind Ratchis, or Ratkis in Italian, which I'll use because it sounds quite funny. So the first issue Ratkis had was to legitimise his position, especially with the Frankish Pippin, Liutprand's adopted son, peeking over the Alps from France, noisily sharpening his sword. Ratkis looked for consent in the poorer classes and among the Italians. Indeed, he was the first Lombard king to marry a Roman woman, Tassia. Another of the first things he did was to sign a 20-year peace with the Pope. However, he obviously wasn't the most decisive of people, and the pressure from the conservative Lombards pushed him to lay siege to the city of Perugia, located on the strip of land connecting Rome to the areas around Ravenna. This time, it was the Pope who was able to convince him to lift the siege, and that was just too much messing around for the Lombard nobles, and they elected his brother, Aistulf, as the new king in Milan. The ex-king Ratkis sort of retired to the monastery of Monte Cassino, the one which had been founded by St. Benedict, while his wife and daughter went to a convent. Eistulf was quite a different character from his brother. He was brave, charismatic and energetic. He declared himself Rex Gentis Langobardorum, king of the Lombard people, and added, having the Roman people been given to us by God. If you had to choose a big three for the Lombard kings, you could put Rothery, then Liutprand, and finally this guy. His aim was to finally unite all of the Italian peninsula under Lombard rule. And to do this, he decided it was time to reform the military. Service was based on lands and wealth. The richest landowners and merchants had to show up for service in full armour, weapons and with a horse. 
the middle level, had to perform their service with a horse, shield and lance, whereas the poorer people had to come with a shield, a bow and arrows. By this point, the army also included merchants and Italians. Aistulf also passed laws aimed at the discipline of commanders and limited the possibility of richer members of society to avoid the draft. He also strengthened the Apennine defences. He also strengthened the Apennine defences to defend his northern borders. Once he had sorted the army out, he immediately took the offensive against the lands that by that time only nominally belonged to the Byzantine Empire. In 750, he moved into the Exarchate and took the cities of Comacchio and Ferrara, and in 751, he finally and definitively took Ravenna, waltzed into the palace of the Exarch, and raised the city to the second capital of the reign. He also started at this point to mint coins in his own image, in Byzantine style. He was also able to gain influence over the Pope's allies, the duchies of Spoleto and Benevento. In the first case, he deposed the Duke Lupo and took direct control himself, and in Benevento he assured the loyalty of the regent of the young Duke, another Lutprand. At this point, with all the other boxes ticked, Aistulf could turn his attention to the new Pope, Stephen II. He requested a tribute of a golden solidus for every inhabitant of the Duchy of Rome. The Pope refused, and Aistulf started to raid the surrounding territories. Yet, he held back from Rome herself. After all, he had to pass himself off as a good Catholic king. There was also, and you're probably getting very bored of hearing this by now, the ever-present issue of the Franks. Now, last time they had looked rather favourably upon the Lombard king, Liutprand. This time, things were different. We won't see how they were different next time. Indeed, this Sunday, the 4th of March, we're having a national election in Italy. So I thought I'd take an opportunity to talk a little bit about our parliament, the election, and the rather interesting characters who are the protagonists of our national politics. We'll get back to the Lombards, the episode after that one. Until then, as always, thank you very much for listening. Remember that if you want to ask us a question or just make a comment, you can send us an email at hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can find the link through to our Facebook page or to our YouTube channel where you can see a couple of documentaries on Italian cities. Please remember to take the time to rate review and subscribe to our podcast and until next time thanks again very much for listening arrivederci Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. 
Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy, and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.